Hey everybody, it's the latest episode of Dead Cat. Tom here with Eric and our good friend Jonathan Weber, uh, editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Standard. Um, this is a very San Francisco-oriented episode. I think all three of us are in SF as we record this. And Katie, who wouldn't be, is uh, is off doing January 6 hearings coverage. So we've really focused in on uh, the San Francisco aspect of things. In, in classic fashion, we were out to dinner and drinks with Jonathan. And then it was like, oh, this could be a podcast. <laughs> Come on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're having a good time. Maybe someone else will yeah. enjoy this too. Yes. Well, and, and having a quite excellent meal actually is, <laughs> as one is wont to do in San Francisco. So despite all the bad press, you know, we still have the best restaurants, I will say. <laughs> right. But also mid-meal, a very terrifying firework went off far too close to the table that I don't know was an ominous sign of, <laughs> you know, San Francisco to come. But uh, anyway, we, uh, we, uh, so Tom, Katie and I all worked together briefly with uh, Weber at the information that so that's sort of the genesis of the podcast and a piece of the missing link of that history is now joining us. Weber, you know, has been sort of a senior Reuters executive and uh, been back and forth there, but now has left. Uh, to run uh, the editorial, what you're the are you the editor in chief of the San Francisco Standard, sort of a Michael yes. Moritz backed uh, local news upstart, um, and has, yeah, let's give know, our listeners a rundown of what exactly the San Francisco Standard is and and how it does fit into tech uh, more broadly. Yeah, sure. So um, the San Francisco Standard is a new uh, daily uh, news operation, uh, kind of a digital newspaper, you could call it, for for lack of a better word. Uh, we're really trying to, you know, see what you can do if you really build a, a serious local news organization from the ground up in the digital era. And uh, that involves a lot of traditional journalistic things, writing, you know, great stories and breaking news and going deep and all those things. Uh, but then it also involves being very creative and innovative on the distribution side, uh, taking advantage of sort of the full suite of tools and technologies that are available now that, you know, definitely were not you know, 10 years ago. So we're backed by Michael Martz, a very successful venture capitalist. He has been a, just an awesome person to, to work with. He's not terribly involved day to day, but he is a person who's quite sophisticated about media. He was a journalist before he was a venture capitalist. And I think he really understands, you know, what it takes to, uh, to build a new journalism brand. It's not a, not an easy thing. It's an expensive and slow road, but, uh, I think we're off to a pretty good start. We've got about 20 people, I think, uh, in editorial currently, and we're, we're still growing, uh, very quickly hiring for almost all positions. So if any, any uh, listeners there are, uh, our accomplished journalists who want to work for a great new uh, San Francisco news organization, uh, g- g- give me a, a call. Good situation yeah. where you you have enough budget that you want <laughs> journalists to reach out. Normally, I feel like it's the opposite situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a high journalist quotient audience, so right. you're, you're pitching to the right people. Right. <laughs> right and right. I don't want to spend too much time on Moritz, um, but I do think what is interesting about his approach to starting this thing is we have seen very wealthy. Is, is Mike a billionaire? You don't have to answer this, Weber, but... Uh, you think so, Eric? Is he probably yeah, in that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we, we've seen the billionaire owners, you know, like uh, Benioff buying Time Magazine, Bezos, of course, but they're all buying existing publications, some sort of as a, I don't want to say charity case, but it's quasi philanthropic effort. Whereas, you know, Moritz, like you say, was a journalist in a previous life and is sort of building this from the ground up, which I think is an interesting approach to see from someone wealthy, which, you know, in once they're both means to the same end. But I, I sort of like the idea of like, let's let's not just buy this thing as like a side piece, but really, you know, build it up in some way. Yeah, well, and I think it's um, uh, it's 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 certainly important to him that this is not uh, he does not think of this as like a vanity project or a charity project or anything like that. I mean, that's why uh, it is a it is a company. It's not a it's not a nonprofit. It's a it's an LLC, and he's not really doing it to make money. I mean, he has much easier ways to make money, frankly, than investing in journalism. You know, software is a way better way to make money, right? We all know that. I thought journalism were tech companies. <laughs> so he's not in it, you know, for for that exactly. But I think that, so his real motivation for starting it is just that he thinks that uh, San Francisco City has a lot of problems. It really needs to kind of get its act together. And one of the reasons that it has a lot of problems is that the media culture here has been uh, kind of weak for a long time and there's uh, not a lot of 
accountability journalism. We've got a lot of investigative reporting um, and just not a lot of journalism in general. And he thinks that, you know, that good, good journalism and uh, uh, reliable and trusted news source is like very important for the city to help it function better. So that that is really the reason for the investment. But I think that he also believes that there actually is kind of an opportunity, like it's a huge moment in transition in the media business and uh, the advent of subscription models that actually work uh, is a real game changer. So uh, I think in the back of his mind, he also uh, gets excited about the business opportunity. So Ch- let's get to Chase Boudin and we can sort of pepper in, you know, the local journalism uh, stuff along the way. I mean, you, I mean, it, it sort of already shows the access that this standard is getting, given that uh, you did a big interview with Chesa. You guys had a huge profile of him, uh, I think, quoting Willie Brown. So it feels like reading the coverage, you guys are like in the mix of sort of the local San Francisco politics. And obviously, you know, Chesa just just lost lost the recall. So we're sort of taking stock of that. I mean... Now that he's recalled, like, what is your reaction to the recall? Or what is what is your high-level reaction? People are wondering whether it's a national story about progressive Democrats or it's a very particular San Francisco saga. Do you have a leaning one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think, I think it's a little of both. So there are particular circumstances in San Francisco uh, having to do with the composition of the electorate mainly that make it uh, very different than some of the other cities, say in Philadelphia or Chicago or some of the other cities that have progressive DAs because we have a a very small uh, black population. Uh, It's less than 6% of the city population. So, and we have very large uh, Asian American population. And so the Black and brown communities, uh, I think, have been a core of the support for progressive prosecutors, and there just isn't really that base here. And then at the same time, the uh, Asian-American electorate uh, really felt that he did not um, take seriously the rise in hate crimes against against Asians in the wake of the pandemic uh, and Trump's blaming of it, uh, blaming China for the pandemic and all that. And that caused a huge spike in, in hate crimes against Asians. And there was a feeling that Chase did not uh, really address that uh, sufficiently. So you had like very small black population and then a very alienated and very large Asian population. And that is particular to San Francisco. So so there's that piece of it, which is specific to San Francisco. But but I think there is a bigger thing, which is that um, I think that voters here were just really, really fed up with kind of the prevalence of, of low-level crimes, which Boudin explicitly deprioritized that was sort of his platform but things like shoplifting and car break-ins and 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 drug use drug use and drug dealing and um you know his chief of staff tweeted after they lost kate chaffield Boudin's chief of staff tweeted in 30 months we reduced the jail pop by 38 percent we reduced the sf prison pop by 35 percent we stopped charging kids as adults and reduced the number of kids in jail by 50 percent we have seen victims forgive and those who harmed a tone all while violent crime has gone down. We have already won. This idea that they were clearing out the jails, were they honest about that? How open were they about the progressive agenda while they're running versus now? No, I think very explicit. I mean, they, you know, they were, he ran on a decarceration platform. I mean, that's his, you know, central to his, both his personal story, right? Because his parents were imprisoned for decades and and so, yeah, I mean, he was quite explicit about that. That that's a centerpiece of the reform prosecutor platform, and and he's stuck to his guns, you know. Like so, even even after, you know, he was elected before the pandemic, right? So, I think the pandemic really changed people's priorities a lot and uh, created uh, a kind of a generalized anxiety. And on top of that, you know, even though street crime has not gone up. And so this has been one of the big arguments that crime hasn't really gone up, but people feel that crime has gone up. And I think we did an analysis a while ago about this. And I think a very good explanation is that because people weren't out and about during the pandemic, even though the number of crimes was lower, the chances of you being a crime victim were actually higher because there were so many fewer people out and about. So he responded to, to people's concerns about crime and particularly street crime and, and these, you know, retail thefts and this kind of stuff and the drug dealing, frankly. And he responded to that by 
essentially saying like, yeah, that's, you know, that's just kind of goes with the program. Like he didn't really take those concerns uh, very seriously. And I think the, um, you know, the drug dealing, you know, the drug issue also has come around like, so the, the real progressive point of view ultimately is like drugs should be legal or, you know, these are only semi crimes, you know, really, but, but with, with fentanyl, um, you know, there's so many people dying and, and you have, you know, parts of the city where the street cars are just like a mob of drug dealers and it's very frightening to people. And, um, you know, and he hasn't really responded to that in a serious way. And I think that, you know, people are like, dude, you know, it's your job to do, try to do something about open air drug markets and people dying right and left. Like, you know, and the response has sort of been like, well, it's not really our fault. A lot of blame shifting. Uh, so I think, you know, he had a tough hand to play. Uh, I don't think he played it very well, but it was a tough hand for sure. I kind of want to move past the autopsy on, on, on Chesa specifically, because, you know, a lot of this stuff, whether, you know, there were legitimate concerns or this was, you know, kind of pumped up grievances by the right wing kind of played out for the last couple of months. But I am kind of more interested now in the implications of his loss and, you know, where the real power center is in San Francisco, because, you know, if you viewed this race strictly from what people were tweeting about and the people that I follow were tweeting about, there was a very outspoken tech contingent. Uh, of people pushing the recall. I think of, you know, obviously David Sachs, obviously Gary Tan, uh, people with fewer followers than them. Uh, you know, by the way, we should also say that Sachs doesn't live in San Francisco. So, you know. But Gary has been very involved in Grow SF has been. Sure. Sort of, I, yeah. I'm not, right. I'm not yeah. delegitimizing people like Gary. I am people like David. But what, you know, did you see in the success of this recall effort a, you know, how much would you ascribe tech's largesse and, you know, a contingent within the tech community to push for something like this that signifies that we are maybe seeing a more widespread influence by, you know, wealthy tech people in San Francisco to push their own policies? Well, I, I would sort of divide that into two questions or, or two, two issues. So the money from the tech people and then from some other, you know, kind of financial people and stuff, that money was was essential to to making the recalls happen. So in order to get a recall on the ballot, you'd need 10% of the voters in the city to sign a petition. And that's actually a pretty high bar if you're just kind of doing it by hand, you know. So the, the way that you get a, a recall on the ballot is you have paid signature gathering, you know. So you, so you spend, you know, a lot of money. I, I don't remember the, the exact numbers, but, you know, it was definitely in the several millions of dollars, I believe, you know, to, to basically collect the signatures to get the thing on the ballot. And so if you don't have that money, it doesn't get on the ballot. And it was a very organized and concerted effort. I mean, I would be, you know, going to Home Depot and see people with clipboards just saying, hey, do you hate pedophilia? Just like, <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. I'd like people around me to hear that I do. Is that sincere uh, they would ask that? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would basically be like, do you want to get pedophiles back in, in, in prison? Well, and and, it's, a, it's a crazy incentive structure, you know, because the, yeah. the signature gatherers are paid per signature. Yeah, right? they don't know what they're doing. So, they're so they, don't, they don't know or care about the actual issues. They're just, they're just this, saying... This is why what, we can't make eye contact with other humans anymore. You have to, you know, stare your phone for your own self-preservation. Yeah. And... To me, you know, like personally, you know, I don't think that that kind of system where like a bunch of rich people can, you know, get a recall on the ballot in order to 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 sort of basically take another swing at somebody they don't like, you know, and that was sort of the dynamic, right? I mean, he was hated from the beginning. A recall, if you if you have the money to get it on the ballot, it can be easier to win a recall than to win an election because they're for sure. There, there is an irony that the recall system feels like a activist sort of progressive oriented California system. Is that wrong? Well, the, or? the crazy thing. Well, the crazy thing is that the whole initiative, citizen initiative process in California, was started by Hiram Walker back in the um, uh, in the early 1900s, and it, it was a it was a populist thing. It was a way right. to, for the for the people to take back control from the railroad interests and the power companies and all that. But the perversion of the process is specifically the paid signature gathering. So if you if you disallowed paid signature gathering, it would be a completely different landscape hmm. because then it would serve as a check where like if there really were like people were rising up and really mad, you know, and you wouldn't need to have 
you would need to pay someone to collect those signatures, right? So right. there's it was an outlet for genuine popular, you know, uprising, as it were, and a mechanism for that. But but with paid signature gathering, it just becomes another vehicle for special interests to try to jam stuff through, right. you know, and you see this at the state level every every year, you know, tens of millions of dollars, you know, spent. We cut things. into your two part answer. You had you know, the recall wouldn't happen without the wealthy sort of money right. behind it. And then sort of, I guess, the actual vote. Right. And then, yes. And then when you come to the vote itself, so there's there's a, you know, and I've been having an, I've been having a, a, a running argument with my friend, uh, Tim Redman, who's the, uh, uh, he was the longtime editor of the Bay Guardian, and he's now the editor of 48 Hills. And uh, we've known each other forever. And um, real leftist. Isn't he NIMBY number one? He's a very like anti growth sort well, of figure. Well, he's kind of the tribune of a certain, you know, left or right. progressive faction, I guess. And, and you know, he takes the view that, yeah, you know, this is just like the rich people, you know, buying an election, basically. I don't think that's true. So, again, like putting, getting it on the ballot is one thing, but like getting the votes is another thing. And I think that the the fact that people voted to recall him and, in, in, you know, by, by almost two thirds really does reflect something other than, you know, the tech money. I mean, it, it, it reflects a widespread frustration with the government's job in, in, in dealing with, with the city's problems. So, you know, people, the open air drug markets, especially, um, and the, you know, the car break-ins, the house break-ins, the you know, people are really, really fed up with this. You know, people don't feel safe walking around the streets. And, you know, the homeless issue plays into that. And so people don't feel safe. And this is an expression of that. And, you know, and that's not a tech money thing. Now, there's a big question as to whether this election represents a sort of a, a real, like, secular shift away from progressive policies. And, you know, we have a majority... A progressive in San Francisco, as many listeners may know, the two parties. Yeah, are I, I there, imagine are there, half our listeners are in San Francisco and half are in New yeah. York, and both are very invested. So I'm happy to be yeah. as yeah, local so, as you want on this. Yeah. So the two parties, you know, are the progressives and the moderates, right? And um, and so the mayor is a moderate, and the uh, the board of supervisors is controlled by the progressives. And so, and then of course, Boudin was a progressive. So the, there's a big question as to whether the, you know, this. Uh, reflects a rejection of of the progressive agenda in San Francisco in general, or whether it's more personal to Boudin. And I think that it does actually represent a real turn against progressive policies, honestly. Well, it feels like the Gary Tans of the world are gearing up to go after the progressives now, right? I mean, oh yeah, no. I mean, we had a story this morning. You know, Gordon Marr, who's the uh, supervisor uh, for the Sunset District, which is heavily Asian, and you know, he's Asian American, but he. You know, the Asian-American politicians were, for the most part, against the Boudin recall. They were also against the school board recall. And both of those recalls had huge support in the Asian community. So there's a feeling that the Asian electeds are out of step with their constituents. And so Gordon Marr, you know, is definitely in the firing line um, and in danger, I think, of losing his seat. I mean, you know, that that's just a you know, for what it's worth. But it's funny, by the way, Eric, you know, you're bringing up half our listeners are in San Francisco, half for New York or whatever. But, it, you know, which raises the questions, why should anyone care about this particular recall and, and, you know, this primary election? And the sense I got from reading the national media, you know, all these national reporters kind of flew in for a couple days and made summations about the state of things in San Francisco, because it felt like there was this desire to use San Francisco as a frame for what the country is going through, at least Democrats are going right. through. Right, Nellie Bowles, who who we know wrote, you know, a big piece in the Atlantic, sort of framing right. up right. San Francisco. Yeah, and so I mean, it's a it's a perfect, you know, but is that fair? Is my it's, question. It's a perfect. It's a perfect little yeah. package, right? You know, the most lefty city in the country, you know, rejecting its lefty DA, and you know, what does that mean for America? And so that's a obvious storyline. I mean, I think the the question really is, you know, does this represent a shift in the in the it's really within the Democratic Party, you know, a shift towards the more moderate side of the party versus the more progressive way of the party. I mean, Eric Adams won in New York. I, I feel like that's sort of, well, yeah, you, look you at LA, feel it I everywhere mean, you look. I mean, I just feel yeah, like the, exactly. the sort of lack of interest in woke politics or whatever is surging and that's going to flow everywhere. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, and again, Tom's like the pandemic, well, the pandemic is a total game changer. You know, the pandemic just 
reordered people's priorities. You know, and I think that, frankly, for a lot of white people, you know, uh, social justice issues are, they may care about them, but, you know, things shift and then they care about them less than they care about other things. I mean, people you know? put crime, in, crime and safety very high in the things that affect them. I mean, Tom, you have a whole view on San You're, you, you never think San Francisco politics are as liberal as presented or what's your view on this yeah and this maybe is just a reiteration of your your buddy tim redmond's argument um look i grew up in the bay area not in san francisco so i don't have nelly bulls like cred you know about the the decades of policy in the city but my read your parents live in moraga what yeah east bay like like straight up white flight city like i'm or town uh city of the town but uh I, I, the idea of San Francisco as some avatar of the furthest left's politics, I always think is a bit contradictory to the actual politicians that have risen out of San Francisco's political scene. You know, this is the city we were talking about at dinner. Like, this is the city that produced Kamala Harris. It's the city that produced Dianne Feinstein. Um, London Breed, who's the current mayor, you say is a moderate. Um, Nancy Pelosi, you know, the avatar of institutionalism uh, is, is from San Francisco. So I, I find it so interesting that there is a desire to present San Francisco as the furthest left, you know, most progressive city, which from a political standpoint, it kind of goes back and forth. I've never seen this as a, as a place that was led by straight up socialists. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm curious as to why there's such a need to portray, you know, what happened in San Francisco, you know, this last week, which absolutely was a repudiation of, you know, a progressive DA and, and what he stood for. But whether there are truly larger implications to draw from it, because I just don't think San Francisco is the best version of that. There must be more progressive cities you could look at uh, th than San Francisco that would show that sort of a shift. Um, but, but maybe you disagree. Well, you know, it's uh, I mean. It's certainly well taken that more moderate democratic politicians have have had the upper hand mostly in in this sort of internecine you know war here between moderates and progressives. But I would I would also note you know from a national perspective that you know that somebody like Nancy Pelosi, for example, you know might be on the right wing of the party in San Francisco, but she's still on the left wing of the party nationally. I mean not. I mean, not the AOC wing, right? So, so currently as House Majority Leader, she's not uh, thought of that way. But if you look at her record historically, you know, she's a very liberal Democrat. And so are most of those people that, that, that you mentioned. So, you know, so I think when, when people hold up San Francisco as this avatar of like left-wing politics, they're not really making the distinction actually between like, you know, Nancy Pelosi and, you know, and, and, and Chase Boudin, I think. So there's an easy commingling of, you know, just those kind of Democrats. Now, in terms of locally, I mean, I do think that, you know, currently, for example, as I mentioned, they, the supervisors control the board of super, the progressives control the board of supervisors. You know, several of those supervisors, like, you know, Dean Preston, you know, is actually a member of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, you know, and, and I don't think there are very many other cities where there are like actual socialists in real positions of power. And that was a big deal when he won, you know, he, he, he very narrowly defeated someone that was slightly to his right. So yeah, and, it, right. and he is an out Similarly out. with Similarly with Chase Sabudi, right. yeah, yeah. So these are very, very lefty people, you know, who got elected and probably couldn't get elected most places. And if you look at the, you know, the policies that the city has pursued on, you know, any, any number of things, I mean, I, I think the, you know, so homelessness, you know, is, is an example. So the, you know, the city has sort of taken the view that, you know, we're not going to prevent people from sleeping on the street. You know, we're going to kind of let people sleep on the sidewalk. We're not going to force, we're not going to force people to go to shelter. And was that a chase of decision or who makes that decision well that no i mean that's a you know, that's a mayor slash right. board of right. supervisors decision you know to, to give an example of what i'm talking about um if you look at the homelessness policy so the city has declined so there's a fight within the the activists or, or social worker community around homelessness there's an argument about whether you should spend money on shelters versus whether you should spend money on permanent supportive housing Right. And so in San Francisco, they made a decision that, like, we're not going to build shelters, basically. Right. We're not going to have shelters. And we're going to spend the year to force the hand, you it's know. It's ridiculous. Yeah. For permanent housing. But then, of course, you know, that takes forever. And, you know, and so meanwhile, 
you know, you have 3,000 shelter beds and 8,000 homeless people. And so in that circumstance, you actually are not allowed to really forbid people from sleeping on the street because you have to have somewhere for them to go. Right. Whereas New York, there's a requirement. We're shifting into policy. I And I do yeah. want to talk about the policy so that... Like New York, there's a requirement to shelter, right? I mean, on a fundamental exactly. level, right. that is right. the right. difference between yep. the homeless policy in the two cities, right? I mean, exactly. Yep, that is the difference, and and it's a big difference. It's a very important difference, and I think that it's one of the things that you know people look at that and say, well, that's a super like that. That's a progressive policy that is a terrible policy. You know that there, there's a bad. You know, they people look at that and they're like. What the hell? Like, you know, I can't walk down the street. Right. But giving everybody some place to stay every night, that's a progressive policy, too. I, I, I don't, is that really, I don't know. Do we need to put that on a left, right, or a left, left, left uh, spectrum? To me, it does feel like giving everyone well, yeah, some I mean, place to know. stay is, like, progressive. I, I, I see how it's not framed that way. Well, but, but, but forcing someone into a shelter is right. a violation of their rights. Yeah, and the, the other thing I was going to add, because I think they go together, you know, from, from a policy standpoint, the things that really piss people off, you know, is that um, is the housing, you know, crisis, uh, which contributes to homelessness and, and, you know, incredibly high rents and all that stuff, right? So one of the obvious solutions, one of the reasons for it is because there's no housing construction. Right. Or very, very little. And, the, and again, like, so the progressive position is market rate housing means gentrification. So we're going to oppose market rate housing, basically. So the only kind of housing we're going to support is affordable housing. Right. So that is kind of the policy, essentially, of the progressives, although they would not admit that quite because it sounds bad, but, but that really is the policy. And so, you know, people are like, that's crazy. Right. You know, we need, we need well, housing. Like, come on, you know? I mean, this, this is very, very tight here. We've, we've got... The shelter policy, not a boutine policy. We've got, you know, housing construction, not a boutine policy. And the third right. that I would add is, you know, not living. I mean, based on my experience in New York and having lived in San Francisco for many years, it does feel like the police are the you know first line of defense on many of these problems, and it does feel like they're out to lunch, like hanging out with each other. On, literally, I mean, totally, every time yeah. I see police, I it looks like they're just like hanging out with their, it reminds me of high school lunch. Like every, every time, like I just, like you'll literally, I've yelled at police to like do something about mopeds, like in pro, you know, anyway, this is New York problems, but it just feels like, what are police doing? They all hang out together all the time. And, and sir, I would assume Boudin wants the police to not be striking and to help him. So, so all these three things to me, in some ways, even though I would probably have, supported the recall uh make me sympathetic uh to chasa because they're not they're not it's not his fault well, no ab absolutely and 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 inciting those policies by the way to be clear you know i was not saying that those are that those are chase's oh, policies i, I, I was it, saying but that it, those i are, do think that's, that's what the progressive are, right that's the progressive part of the progressive policy framework that people are rebelling that's against really what he's say. getting yeah. right that's yeah. why he's getting repealed yeah. uh, and so uh, he's been the fall yeah. guy absolutely so he's been the fall guy for all kinds of stuff he's blamed for many things that are not his fault and um and that's you know that's bad luck for him and you know unfair i guess on some way that's although politics. you know somebody becomes politics, the right? politics isn't fair it wasn't fair that he won in the first place you right. know so that is true, that he, he was the whipping boy, you know, for all kinds of stuff. And frankly, you know, I mean, the mayor, you know, he really took a lot of the, of the heat that would have otherwise gone to the mayor. And now that he's gone, you know, it's not going to be good for the mayor right. at That's all. That's interesting. She sort of, did she come down firmly one way or the other on this? She didn't. I mean, she didn't take an official position, but I, you know, it was pretty clear that she was not on the same page. You know, they didn't work well together and and she said things numerous times uh that were sort of seemed to be indirectly uh blaming what them, do so. you make of this the police issue i mean we you know defund has become you know obviously this flashpoint but to me just not politically just policy it like whether you're funding law enforcement or not like the police departments in these major cities yeah they just seem like totally inept and i i don't know no, if any, yeah, any mayor yeah. knows how to reform them i mean if eric adams 
can't. And, you know, I. Yeah, yeah no, it is. A, it is a very tough issue. And, and certainly the police uh, deserve a lot of blame. You know, the, the department here has a terrible history of racism and, and lack of accountability. And, you know, Boudin prosecuted a cop, went on trial for beating not, not long ago, a month or so ago. And, and uh, he, he ended up being acquitted. But, you know, it was like the first time ever that an SFPD officer had been put on trial for for something and, you know, which is kind of amazing. So, right. you know, the, and the police have been kind of on strike and they've almost been explicit that like, yeah, we're not going to bother arresting people if the DA won't prosecute them. And so they have been, you know, extremely irresponsible, I think, in, in their whole posture around this. And they have a huge amount to answer for, um, but it's a very difficult problem. You know, they, uh, a previous chief who I know a little bit, uh, a guy named Greg Sir, and he was brought in, um, and then, you know, this was six or seven years ago, I guess. And then, you know, and, and he was a, a kind of an insider, like a guy who would come up in the ranks and had the trust of the rank and file cops, but was also himself a very liberal guy, believed in the need for reform, had strong connections in the community, had a lot of support. And he was like the kind of guy that you would think could really, you know, reform the department. And, you know, five bad shootings later, you know, he was forced to resign. Um, so it's a, it's a bad, it's a bad situation for sure. And I, I don't really know what the, you know, what the solution is really. I do, I do think, well, what, one solution I would have is that I don't think policemen should be able to have labor unions in the way that they do. Right. So that would be one solution I would have. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm like, oh, we need an alternative police force. <laughs> Why call our police force? I, I, I just feel like, you know, these mayors come into office. They're terrified by the police. They need the coercive apparatus of the state to hold on to their power. Your biggest nightmare is just like riots somewhere that the police aren't doing anything about. And so then you totally capitulate to them and really like, you know, yeah, they're, they're running the show more than, than you. And that's not how democratic societies are supposed to work. And I mean, it doesn't make sense for these deep blue cities to have pro-Trump fascist inclined police forces. You know, I, I, I feel like you need local people who are ideologically aligned with with the city. So, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. I feel anti-progressive on some of these things, but then on the police, I'm like, I don't know. We need much more radical solutions than I think are being proposed. Right. Right. Well, certainly in San Francisco, I mean, there's a, you know, there is a culturally conservative, you know, ethnic, you know, Irish and Italian and uh, some Scandinavian and, you know, older ethnic communities uh, in the city that are, that are white and, and pretty conservative and, and uh, Catholic heavily in many cases. And, and the culture of the police and fire department is uh, kind of comes out of those communities and out of the Catholic schools. And so, so it's not that the police are local exactly, but they, right, that's a New they, York they come from right. a, they come from a local, from a faction, you know, that's sort of been opposed to the, you know, the liberal ways of right. lefty San Francisco. I think a big political issue for the Democrats right now is the sort of failure of these deep blue states, um, California, New York, to sort of really carry out like the democratic agenda in a true way. I mean, do you see that as a fair critique or do you think states just like don't, given sort of the U.S. system, it's like California can't realistically pass universal health care or can't really deliver on the, the federal agenda of the Democratic Party you know, I don't, I don't know. How much do, should we judge the federal party based on the state performance? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that is a, you know, a, a very important question that I don't know that I have the uh, uh, crystal clear answer to. But, but I, I, I do think that, I mean, because there are, there are macro factors, you know, like if you talk about something like the housing crisis, you know, you get like, well, it's Ronald Reagan's fault, right? Because, you know, he defunded uh, public housing and other things and like you can trace today's problems to that and so as governor like, of california no, as president as president you know so there's many ways in which you know all these current urban problems are really not the fault you know are a result of national policies really and you know income inequality and you know these big things that cities can't do anything about having said that you know san francisco in particular in california more generally i mean you know has does have like a big government 
the city of San Francisco is the budget for the city is $13 billion a year for a city of 800,000. That is like probably 10x, you know, the budget of most cities on a per capita basis. And, wow. you know, now that's a lot of that is because of um, it's both a city and a county. Hmm. So that skews the comparison. So, uh, but, but still in all, you know, the, the, the city government here spends a lot of money and the state, you know, there's the state has like a big regulatory apparatus. And, you know, we, you know, this is sort of the American version of a, of a kind of a big government place. And, and people look around and they say, this doesn't seem to be working very well. Right. You know, is that really, is that because the politicians and the civic leaders are doing a bad job of it? Or is it because there's really nothing they can do about it? You know, that's the question that's very hard to answer. But, you know, certainly as a, you know, as a resident here and, and as a journalist here, uh, when I look at the, uh, the city government and the money that's spent on, you know, lots of different things. And, you know, I kind of look at that and think, well, you know, the results, I don't know. I mean, right. for that kind of spending, are we really getting the results? I, I don't know. And you could certainly, you know, I don't really want to kind of be dispositive on, you know, what I think, I mean, I honestly don't know, but, but I do think that a lot of people look at it and they're like, wow, you know, we're spending a lot of money and we're not getting much for it. I mean, to bring it back to the, to the media, which we're obviously always endlessly uh, obsessed with ourselves and self-absorbed, but, but I mean, if I think about the tradition, you know, of the media, I think it's fair to say, at least in the time where, you know, I've been a reporter, it's been sort of more left-wing reporters sort of scrutinizing sort of a right-wing sort of power structure, business world, political world. I mean, I briefly worked for the Washington Examiner, which was sort of a conservative uh, billionaire's attempt to create like a right-leaning sort of look at Washington, D.C. It ultimately failed. I mean, I can tell you all the reporters, I'm sure, were more left-wing. It was like pretty pretty incoherent uh, and sort of not intellectually honest project. But so I've, I've always been sort of aligned with the, you know, sort of left-leaning Democrats sort of scrutinizing the right-leaning system. But do you think now, I mean, do you see yourself, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much you want to like profess an ideology as a reporter, but I mean, do you see that feel that, okay, now there's sort of like a, a legitimate sort of reporting oriented right, right-wing critique of, of a left-wing San Francisco? Well, I mean, I think there is, um, although, you know, I don't think that I would not characterize what we're doing as like a right wing critique. Right. I right. mean, not right. You know, we're, yeah. we're just, I'm sure know, other we're, just we're just, we're just trying. Well, other people certainly do, you know, right. pe people make all kinds of assumptions about our political agenda that are completely bogus. Like everyone thinks they know what Mike Moritz believes and wants politically. And everybody is so completely wrong about all that. And, you know, so, so there's, there's all these assumptions about our political agenda that are total baloney. So, you know, now personally, like, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of whatever slant we, we, we have or don't have. We really try to follow the reporting. We, we got a lot of flack about a story that um, uh, pointed out that there had only been three convictions for drug dealing uh, in the city in 2021. And, and that story was, you know, why harshly criticized by Boudin supporters as being, you know, misleading and which it wasn't. I mean, they, you know, they didn't like the facts, frankly. Um, you know, there was a critique that like the framing of it was because basically you know, the facts were he was like downgrading all the drug drug crimes. Yeah, to lower he crimes. was pleading them out to a lesser charge. Right. Um, but you say in so, the story but they obviously people want to limit a whole story to the headline, you know. Yeah, uh, which is in right. the it's in the third paragraph. <laughs> Yeah. If you thought the headline wasn't the full story, you had to read all the way to the third paragraph. Right. So, you know, I didn't feel that was a fair critique. I, I did, you know, people were, um, the other criticism was that there was sort of an implicit assumption that, you know, arresting drug dealers would help address the overdose epidemic and that that was invalid. And, you know, and, and I, I mean, I sort of take that point as far as it goes. Uh, the story, of course, did not advocated a particular policy. It was just a report on the record of, of Boudin. But anyway, anyway, so there was, you know, so there's a perception that that's like a right-wing attack, you know, so, okay, I mean, I can't really, you know, do anything about that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think actually, if you want a real uh, sort of a, a right-wing critique in a way, you know, Michael Schellenberger, who wrote a, this book called San Francisco and ran for governor and 
you know, he's kind of a journalist in part. And, and so his critique is sort of the, I would, that, that would be a little bit kind of the right-wing critique of San Francisco. And, Not and very he, popular, right? Didn't he do pretty poorly? Well he, well, he actually says, you know, and I saw him, he did a reading at a, at a book club that I, uh, a friend of mine had, had invited him to. And, um, you know, we talked about this and I said, you know, because I read the book and the book, you know, makes some decent points, but the, but the framing of the book, you know, like, you know, San Francisco, you know, it like doesn't exactly invite, you know, constructive discussion, right? It, it sort of is framed up for like the red meat, you know, right wing audience who wants to bash on San Francisco. And, and so I challenged Michael about that. He was like, well, no, you know, it's not, you know, th- that, that word sicko, that was a deliberate choice because it really is a sickness. So the, so his, his view is that, uh, the liberal progressive politics, belief in progressive politics is kind of a sickness. It's a disorder. It's categorized in DSM. Yeah. You know, and that like, you know, to me, that's like a pretty unhelpful right. uh, approach, right? Yeah. But if you're trying to sell books, it'll probably, you know, cause you can't really, you can't really have a conversation with somebody who's telling you that you're, you're sick for, for your views, right. you know, so. Well, they're not interested in a conversation. I mean, yeah. uh, to finish up on the Schellenberger thing, what I also found funny about trying to draw strong conclusions and narratives from the election is that he was absolutely backed by some high profile tech people, including David Sachs. And Nellie Bowles, I wouldn't call her a high-profile tech person, but, you know, people that were outspoken about San Francisco and, you know, landed like a wet fart in this, <coughs> in this election. I mean, he got like three or 4% of the vote in San Francisco. And so the idea that there was some sort of centrist corrective wave that was going to overtake all aspects of the election just clearly didn't materialize with someone like him. But I kind of want to pitch it forward a little bit now, um, just, you know, as someone who spent most of his life living in Northern California in San Francisco, you know, I, I grew, like, he's a group in the East Bay, but would come to San Francisco a lot. And I sort of see this period, whether or not you agree with the results or, you know, or, are politically aligned with the results of this election, there's no doubting that I feel like San Francisco is shifting, that we are entering some sort of a new era, that the era that began with the Facebook tech boom and this whole Silicon Valley flooding of money into the city, sending rents astronomically high and all the kind of social problems that it caused. A lot of, not a lot, a, a substantial number of people within that wave have left the city. And so that kind of social change that they brought is reaching an end. And I'm curious what you think the next wave is shaping up to look like. You know, obviously it's still a, a hugely important area in tech there's still i mean rents are still absurdly high you know the city isn't like collapsed in any real way despite the way people want to view it but like is what sort of green shoots of change are you starting to see already in the city as we come out of the pandemic and the kind of tech hegemony that had defined it over the last decade is just not as strong as it used to be so one thing i would i would note is that san francisco is a very uh, kind of neighborhoody city and and one of the things that's happened uh, during and and in the current during the pandemic and the current period is that the you know while downtown and the the sort of business districts and the tourist districts are you know in 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 deep trouble uh, the the neighborhoods are are actually quite vibrant so and the, and the neighborhood business districts and you know, commercial activity in, in some of those neighborhood business districts and, and commercial rents and things like that are actually up, are actually higher than they were previously. And so, uh, that, had a great time in the mission the other night. Yeah. And even when, you know, when you go out to the Richmond and the sunset and, you know, different Ingleside, you know, different parts of town, like it's a very different, it's a very different scene. And I think where you see, you know, there's still the things that are amazing about San Francisco, just the incredible beauty of the city and the, uh, kind of cultural diversity and tolerance and the, you know, the weather and the, you know, the, the proximity to incredible outdoor things and, you know, uh, amazing arts institutions, like all those things are still here. So I think it really remains a very appealing place to live. You know, what happens with downtown and, and office workers coming back, you know, is a, is a pretty giant open question, but my, my hunch is that the I, I'm not a believer in the idea that like the the office is dead and no one's ever going to go to the office anymore. Like I don't think that's true. So I feel like we spent years like making fun of tech people for yeah. I mean, taking their buses and not being invested in the city and sort of not having a real sort of political sensibility. 
And I mean, so to some degree, I'm I'm heartened that it feels like there's a core of people who are actually invested in San Francisco city governance. We've seen now the ascendance of Scott Wiener, who is like, I'd say, like as pure a tech candidate as you can have. So, I mean, I don't live here anymore, but uh, as someone who thinks there is good in tech, I, yeah, I'm, I'm heartened that they've decided to invest themselves in good politicians and, and the people are doing it. Sure. There's Sachs who's gone, but most of them are real Democrats, you know, and not particularly ideal ideological, but want, want to, they're optimizers. They want things to work, you know, and things are clearly not working. Um, and you know, I don't know, having well-intentioned, wealthy people, that, that was sort of the heart of the Bloomberg administration. You know, you do sort of, uh, yeah, it, it can work. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. And, you know, Bloomberg is a good example, you know, where I think the city was was well run uh, under Bloomberg and, and he he had some very effective policies. And, you know, from by, you know, most measures, the uh, the city prospered uh, under Bloomberg. Now, at the same time, you know, there were a lot of people who thought that his policies were, uh, you know, essentially too, you know, too capitalist, I suppose, and 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 not that really uh, sensitive to the needs of poorer people and and communities of color and all that. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a unanimous approval of um, Bloomberg's direction, but I I do think that we're probably you know heading something closer to that. I mean, that's a little bit, you know, under previous mayors, under Ed Lee, uh, um, he was, you know, kind of the tech industry's candidate mayor, you know, and he certainly ran. I mean, Ron Conway has been placing mayors, you know, in in City Hall for decades. Yeah, no, that's right. So Ed Lee, you know, he was a little bit like a Mike Bloomberg, you know, uh, in terms of his political orientation and the kinds of things, which is a funny thing to say, because Ed Lee was a civil rights lawyer. You know, he wasn't a he was hardly a Wall Street mogul like Bloomberg, but. Uh, and and ultimately, you know, was still, I would say, to the left of Bloomberg, but he governed as a as a pragmatic, you know, centrist, essentially. One theme we're interested in a lot is sort of like the view view from nowhere reporting that model of a newspaper with sort of unbiased, sort of neutral reporting. What is your view today on sort of the role of yeah neutral view from nowhere reporting? I mean, to a great degree. One way your view is expressed is by is by what you choose to cover. So, uh, so certainly, our choices on what to cover, you know, would reflect. And I mean, I'm I'm personally a, a, a pragmatic person more than an ideologue, and so maybe maybe the coverage will you know will reflect that a bit. I don't think you'll see it you know necessarily reflected you know in the orientation of a particular story, but you know we're very much about about the reporting and like there is there's just so much that is just essentially unreported on here so you know we're trying to to just kind of help people understand like what's going on and they can you know make their own decisions about it and you know i understand that you know the critique about the about the view from nowhere but you know i i i personally actually gone back and forth over the course of my career on this question like a how much how much point of view how much opinion how much take is is sort of necessary and and helpful versus you know undermining of the uh, journalistic commitment to reporting really and and you know i've i've had different views on that at different times i i don't think there's really a a clear cut answer but 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 i do think that our orientation with the standard is to when people ask me, like, what side are you on? You know, I'm like, well, we're on the side of the reporting and we, we really don't want to be on the side. And, and, and this is actually a good illustration of, of the problem with the critique of the view from nowhere, right? Is that if you decide we're going to have a view from somewhere and we're going to be like on, we're going to have this position on different issues. Well, then you're immediately, you know, then you're on like one side and then the other side then you have no credibility with the other side and you're just being the mouthpiece for somebody. And so that's like not really where you want to be. Right. So it's a tough issue. But, I, you know, I think we can be on the side of the reporting. People are going to have different views about our biases. You know, I feel bad for one of our younger reporters who he wrote a story about, um, you know, so people like to beat us up about, you know, Boudin and, you know, the kind of the VC agenda and all this nonsense. 
But then on the flip side, you know, we write a story that about the Bayer Cleary homeless camps and that, you know, people think is like too sympathetic to the homeless hmm. people. And so then we're like pilloried for being, you know, on the side. Of, you Everybody know. likes to work the refs. Any sport, it's easier to assess the refs than it is to, you know, I don't know, solve the real problems. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the cottage industry of like ascribing consistent political beliefs to institutions has become, again, everything viewed through the, the lens of Twitter, but it's it's very rich. Uh, there, there's so much energy and effort spent trying to like decipher what the true agenda is for a lot of these publications. And I don't know, that's a whole complex issue. But I guess just in closing, I am very happy to see that there is major investment being put into local journalism, that you guys are, you know, have a lot of journalists out on the streets trying to uncover new facts and, and you know, in a city that has barely one newspaper, uh, you know, with the Chronicle, which is always like on the verge of collapse, it seems like economically, you know, seeing you guys out there and I guess Axios has some people and, you know, there's a lot of really great blogs in San Francisco, like Mission Local and uh, you can probably name a couple others, but uh, all of that to me feels good, whether or not I necessarily agree with their political agenda or think I know what their agenda is and then decide whether or not I agree with it. Well, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. And I, I certainly would, you know, self-servingly agree with that. You know, more journalism is a good thing. There's way less of it here than there, there used to be. So, you know, I think we, you know, we're making a substantial investment. We're trying to to really build some trust and, and be honest and be honest and open about our reporting and try to deliver it to people in ways that they can, you know, kind of make sense of it and for it to be useful to them. And, um, you know, and I hope, I hope we can do that. I mean, the question of whether, you know, how much people care, like, you know, is a huge one. And I think one of our big challenges really is to, is to get beyond the, you know, relatively small audience of people who, who already have a daily news habit, who already read, you know, are already engaged in civic affairs. That's a, a small percentage of the of the city, and we really want to find ways to reach you know much more broadly than that. Nice. Uh, well, our listeners can check you guys out at uh, sfstandard.com. And uh, thanks for thanks for coming on Weber. It was it's great to catch up. Thanks a bunch. Great to have you. Great to talk to you guys. Great to see you. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.